Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Today on GDP, we have Professor Tony Bins. Professor Bins, since October 2004, has been the Ron Lister Professor of Geography at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. He has worked in the field of geography and development studies for over 40 years and has a long-standing interest in post-conflict reconstruction, food production systems, food security, and community-based development. Much of his field-based research has been undertaken in Sub-Saharan Africa, he has published 21 books and over 150 journal articles and book chapters. He teaches the only course on Africa in New Zealand titled Transformations in Developing Countries. And in 2014, in January of 2014, he was made a chief in the town of Kaima in the far northeast of Sierra Leone, West Africa. His title is Chief Manjawa of Sandor. And today on GDP, we have the one, the only, Professor Tony Bins. And today on the Global Development Primer, coming at you live from Black Ball, New Zealand, we have the one, the only, Professor Tony Bins. Tony, welcome to GDP. Yes, hello, Bob. Nice to speak to you. Absolutely. <clears throat> so let's start off by talking about your work in Sierra Leone, and in particular, how you earned the title of Chief Manjoa of Sandor. There's got to be a story behind that. <laughs> yeah, it goes back a long way, uh, back to 1974, in fact, when I did my PhD in the eastern province of Sierra Leone, um, where I was looking at the relationships between rural development and diamond mining, as diamonds are quite an important product of that eastern province of the country. And I lived in this community, Kaima, for a whole year in 1974. Um, I often tell my students it was probably one of the best years of my life. I had a great time there, and um, <clears throat> as well as uh, talking to lots of farmers uh, and getting to know all about um, lo the local livelihoods and economy, I um, also took a full, ro full role in the community. And after I left, I maintained these links um, by um, sending um, one of the kids from the community to school and paying school fees and so on and maintaining um, links in different ways. And since then, more recently, we've actually built um, a, a, a school for the youngest children, a sort of kindergarten, um, so I'm trying to do something to help the community, which has helped me, I think, and given me that fantastic experience over 40-odd years. So um, my, my visit to Sierra Leone initially was from January 2000, uh, 1974. So 40 years was January 2014. And I heard about three weeks before I got there that the local chiefs had been uh, talking to each other and they decide to make me uh, an honorary chief of uh, of the chiefdom. The chiefdom is called Sandor. The the town is Kaima, and Kaima is the chiefdom headquarters in in uh, in Sandor. My title on um, chief Manjawa Manjawa actually means master farmer, 
Hmm. And um, farmer, of course, most people are farmers. I would say 90% of the people in Kaima are engaged in farming, um, mainly growing upland rice and a whole variety of other crops to feed their families, and that's their main priority. It's a desperately poor community, um, so, you know, farming is what is needed to just keep keep them going, to, to survive. So this is subsistence farming that they're producing just for family-level consumption, maybe community-level consumption. This is not big export agriculture coming out of Sierra Leone. No, certainly not from this community, certainly not big export agriculture. I'm always a bit wary of using the term subsistence because, um, okay, their main objective is to feed the family uh, during during the year, but um, having said that, some of them do sell surpluses in marketplaces. So in that sense, they are getting involved in the sort of market system as well. Um, but um, the key priority is to feed the family. So being called um, Chief Manjawa was quite an honour, really, in that um, it means master farmer, and and uh, I think that's you know quite an important priority in that in that community. Very much. So was this one of the communities that was also impacted by diamond mining and production as well? Uh, yeah, I chose a community. Well, I, I worked in two communities. The other one was called Panguma, which is further south in Kenema District. Kaima's in <clears throat> Kono District, um, and the whole of that area um, there are uh, diamondiferous areas. Um, what it is, the diamonds are in um, volcanic dikes or blocks, as it were, which are in the rock strata, and these have been eroded by the rivers. So the, the diamonds are found in the gravels on, in the banks and the beds of the rivers. So they're actually called alluvial diamonds from that point of view, which is very different from somewhere like South Africa or Botswana, where the diamonds are deep down. They're in the coal mines in yeah, South Africa. Yeah, they yeah. go down in mines. And, of course, for that reason, security is not a particularly serious issue in those countries. But in Sierra Leone... You could literally find a diamond on the on a river bank or whatever, um, particularly after a heavy shower of rain or something, um, and you could just take it and steal it and smuggle it and whatever. So um, the diamonds in Sierra Leone are, um, as somebody put it uh, one occasion, are lootable. They can be taken very easily, whereas the diamonds in Sierra Leone, in South Africa and uh, Botswana, you can't do that because they're in deep mines under heavy security. And these mines get smuggled out to border countries first, is that correct? Do they go yes. to Liberia or to other yeah, countries? Yeah, well, typically the, the diamonds um, will go to neighbouring countries like Liberia and Guinea. Mm -hmm. uh, but even further afield, there are diamond dealers that travel all over West Africa. Um, I was on a plane once flying to the Gambia, to Banjul, and sat next to a diamond dealer on the plane and he opened a little packet of diamonds that he got from Sierra Leone. Now, whether or not these had been through the government buying office, which is what you're supposed to do with diamonds, you're supposed to take them to one of the government buying offices and, and get, um, you know, an agreed price for it and a certificate. But, of course, a lot of people avoid that. Right. And so the smuggling. And, of course, that that really was one of the main causes of the civil war in Sierra Leone. And that's kind of what I want to get to. I mean, we're talking now, this is the early 1990s, is it 1992? 
1991, the Civil War broke out. Okay, so you've got very resource-poor country, West Africa, that has these very transportable diamonds, to which we've seen other economies in South Africa, in, in Africa, do very well uh, with revenue from diamond production, be it Botswana or be it, um, be it South Africa, despite their health challenges there. So people are coming into Sierra Leone, they're taking diamonds out, the country's not getting the revenue. How did this conflict break out? Oh, the origins of the conflict go back, oh, right back to the colonial period, really. It was a British colony, Sierra Leone, yep. until 1961. Um, and... Um, the first Prime Minister was a guy called Sir Milton Margai, who was relatively successful. And people tell me that when, when, the, um, when the colony got its independence, it was in a reasonably good shape. Um, but now we have a country that's the seventh poorest in the world, according to Human Development Index. Um, and also has one of the most dangerous public health systems. It was one of the the countries that was deeply impacted by the Ebola yeah, crisis well, we, in 2014. Yeah, and we could come to that later, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, but the Civil War goes um, is linked with 50-odd um, years of corruption, dysfunctionality, uh, poor leadership. Um, so after the first Prime Minister, Sir Milton Margai, unfortunately he died, his brother took over, and then there was a whole succession of military coups and a guy called Shaka Stevens took over um, as president of the country in uh, 19, um, 1968, it was. Uh, and early 70s, he declared the country a one-party state. He got rid of the opposition. Um, he got rid of district councils, so there was no local-level democracy. Everything was run from the capital city, Freetown, which is in the west of the country. And um, things just went steadily downhill. There were other attempts, attempted coups. And um, Chaka Stevens was getting an old man, and he just decided to hand over the power to one of his friends, basically, um, Brigadier Joseph Momo, who took over um, with no elections at all. And... Um, and things rapidly slid, uh, slid into a appalling state of chaos. And in 1990, 1991, people were just, well, totally fed up with the whole thing. Um, it suggested that it was disaffected young people who were the key players in this civil war. Um, you know, young people from like 15 to, say, 25 or so, um, they was they felt marginalised. They got no vote at the local level because the district councils had been abolished, and they felt marginalised. They were accused of all sorts of crimes by, by paramount chiefs and so on, and sleeping with their wives and things like that. And um, and of course these weren't true in most cases. Um, and uh, so you had a sort of rebel-made army, um, ready-made army rather of young people who were totally disaffected. And then, of course, in Liberia, in neighbouring Liberia, there was turmoil there, and the leader was a guy called Charles Taylor. That's right. And, he was put up on war crimes. Well, yes, he's now in a maximum security prison in Durham in the UK. Hmm. Um, but he was actually responsible for supporting this rebel army 
known as the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front, which then swept across the eastern border of Sierra Leone from Liberia, Liberia yeah, yeah. and moved westwards right across the country, setting fire to villages and any wealthy-looking buildings, paramount chiefs' houses, all that sort of thing. Even schools and clinics were burned down as well. And my community of Kaima was totally abandoned. The two and a half thousand people that lived there, they all left. Many of them fled into the bush, and some of them told me they walked for about three weeks to get to the capital city, mm. um, where there were various aid agencies, you know, Oxfam and Save the Children and ones like that. Right. Um, the, the, lo- the government, um, its army and local, local communities tried to push back the rebels, but on the 6th of January 1999, the rebels actually invaded Freetown, which nobody had expected, and they came into the city, set fire to the Ministry of Finance and various other buildings, and there was a sort of rather bloody battle in Freetown, um, and eventually they were pushed back. Um, the war dragged on for ages. It dragged on until end of 2001, so 1991 to 2001. And um, I guess the culmination of it was when <clears throat> some UN peacekeeping troops were brought in and a group of rebels um, captured some of them. So you had these UN troops being captured by the rebels, and at that point the British High Commissioner in Freetown got on the phone to Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the UK, and said, for goodness sake, come and do something about it. And he sent in the SAS, the Special Air Services. Yeah. And they came in, landed at the airport, and then came across to the Freetown Peninsula in helicopters. And um, within about two or three, well, more like three hours or so, um, all these... um, all these uh, rebels that had captured the UN troops had been killed. There was one British casualty, and he was a helicopter pilot, hmm. um, the only British cam- casualty. It's all written up on, on, on the Internet. Yeah, or, it's a it's, fascinating history, and, and to see that you've got personal connections to villages who are impacted hmm. by this is, is really important. Uh, one of the things also, like the, the level of that conflict hmm. going on for almost a 10-year period. Mm. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, if it started around 1990, 1991, this is right at the time that the Soviet Union was was dissolving. I think it was like Christmas yeah. Day, 1991. Yeah. And immediately you had this massive buildup in the Soviet Union where Gorbachev in his final years, despite Glasnost, uh, which was opening up trade and relations with, with the West, was still amounting a lot of weapons, small arms. AK-47s mm. were mm. in production, and when the, the Soviet Union Red Army changed over, those weapons were for sale. Yes. And those weapons made their way yes. into the hands of the, yes. of the rebel forces that came from Liberia into Sierra Leone. And now, I mean, you had such a quickly armed, yes. angry, destructive group that then became the, the form of governance for a country. Exactly. Well, the, the, the diamonds were exchanged for weapons. And that's it. So, so the diamonds where, were the currency of this. This is where the diamonds came into it, the so-called blood diamonds. They were exchanged for weapons, and uh, Liberia was heavily involved, but we also know that countries like Burkina Faso and Libya, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, were also involved in supplying arms to the rebels in Sierra Leone. 
Right. Was this from that? Is, what, is that what the Kimberley process was that came out of that? Well, the Kimberley process, they, they have talk, the word Kimberley is named after the place in South Africa. That's right. Which was famous for diamonds. Um, but yes, it was called the Kimberley process. And this is basically to try and rid the world of blood diamonds. And um, to a certain extent, it's been quite successful. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that was introduced in Sierra Leone was... Um, an arrangement um, towards the end of the Civil War where um, the chiefdoms where the diamonds were found could keep a proportion of the wealth from the diamonds to invest in sort of community development projects, things like building roads and clinics and, and things it, like that. Has there been any progress on that? Some, but limited. So some of the chiefdoms have actually... Of course, it depends on the diamonds being declared and going through the government buying office right. in order to work out what funds are available and then divide them up according to the various chiefdoms. But, I, I, you know, the chiefdoms I've worked in have received some funding from this. Okay. But there is scope for tightening up the policy rather more. Right. Of course, the issue now is that the diamonds are beginning to run out. They're, they're, you know, they're far fewer now than there were in the 70s when I first went there. Just in that, re- in that one region? Well, so, no, yeah. the whole country. In, in 1974, when I was doing my initial research, 70% of foreign exchange was coming from diamond sales. 70%. It's way down now. It's probably more like 20% or even between right. 10 and 20%. So today then, with this conflict officially over, uh, what are the impacts that you still see in Sierra Leone today? Your, your last trip to Sierra Leone wasn't that long ago, mm. and we're now in a post-conflict state. Uh, does this conflict still have an impact on development there, or have you seen a lot of progress? Yeah, well, the conflict um, sort of came to an end, really, in 2002, early part of 2002. And I managed to go there in November 2002. And what I found was a country which was really on its knees. Um, You know, all around me were buildings that had been set fire to, hospitals that had been set fire to, schools. The roads were in an appalling condition because they've been totally neglected, and then UN troops had come in in great big armoured vehicles and so on, churning up the roads, many of them just um, dirt roads, or laterite roads, as they call them in Sierra Leone. So the roads were... The transport system was in an appalling state. Um, Things like uh, telephone lines, of course, had gone completely, and people were switching more to mobile phones. Um, But, no, the... It used to take me two days to get from Freetown to my village. I had to spend overnight in a place called Koidu, which is the nearest big town. But just after the Civil War, there was nowhere to stay in Koidu because all the guest houses had been burned down. And But the Pakistani troops were there. The UN had sent Pakistani troops to that area. And I had to go and ask the Pakistani general if I could stay at the camp with the soldiers overnight because there was nowhere else to stay um so in 2002 the country was was in an appalling state since then um improvements have been made but i think it's important to point out they were starting from a very very low base in terms of the situation in 2002 so um but they have had a lot of support the british government gives them 
quite a lot of aid through the Department for International Development. They've had um, aid from the European Union, World Bank, and so on. And um, the the two main uh, main roads that go right up country, one in the northern part of the country and one more in the south, um, have all now been resurfaced. Chinese have been involved um, building part of the northern road and so on. So, so that was a massive undertaking. There were other issues like um, power provision. Um, Freetown was regularly getting blackouts and many of the upcountry uh, towns and cities had no power at all. Incidentally, Kaima, where I, where I um, worked in the 90s, in the 70s and where I go to now, has no electricity and no, no, no running water to houses. There are standpipes in the streets. Mm-hmm. But um, really, there's been very little progress. Um, I had a PhD student working there in 2014, which was 40 years after I did my work, and I, I gave him all my data and questionnaires and so on, and he reached the rather sad conclusion that in 40 years there had been virtually no development in Kaima. Right. Um, because this is a village which is really off the beaten track. It's a way... There's no tarred road to Kaima. It's, uh, and that's the big thing. If there's no roads, then there's no chance for any sort of economic development to be facilitated. No. So we're, we're, we're back to really, really the basics. Yes, and of course, everything was interrupted. Uh, you know, things were... Things seemed to be improving. They were improving the, the roads in the capital city, in Freetown. They were widening them. They were resurfacing them. Um, so the traffic system in the capital city became much better and things were happening up country as well and everything was going reasonably okay and then the Ebola hit. Oh, that was The Ebola epidemic, yeah, which was 2014 and 15. That's right. It began in, in March of 2014 where local health <clears throat> authorities who were in the capital or in... Uh, in Freetown, uh, said, "Look, we've got we got Ebola cases that are coming in. And yeah. With Ebola, the real danger of it is when people actually die from it. That's when the the virus, the Ebola virus mm. disease, comes out and becomes extremely uh, contagious. If someone is not actually in that state yet, it's it's more, you know more considered infectious. But what it did is it pretty much devastated uh, the entire health workforce. Mm. I mean, mm. there were hundreds of doctors and nurses." who themselves died from Ebola virus disease uh, within a matter of months. And it wasn't until the international community started thinking about coming in, which was already in August of 2014. So that's almost uh, four or five months after it broke out. Yeah, that's right. Well, as far as we know, the first case of Ebola was in in Guinea, actually. Mm -hmm. And Guinea more or less surrounds Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. So it was near the eastern border of Sierra Leone. in an area known as Kisidugu. Um, that's where the first case was, was found. And, of course, it spread across the borders into Liberia and into Sierra Leone. The borders are very porous. Yeah. And, in fact, the same tribal group live in all those three countries. The, so back and forth. Yeah, the Kisi yeah. people. <clears throat> they live in that area. And um, so there's a lot of mobility. And the... The, the Ebola basically followed the, the movement of people westwards across Sierra Leone through um, the city of Kenema in the southeast, which is capital of the eastern province, and then eventually further west and eventually to Freetown. So um, 
I think the, the Ebola epidemic illustrates the fragile nature of the health system in a country like Sierra Leone. You know, rebuilding after a 12-year civil war, the health system was in a very fragile state. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the health, health system was directed towards dealing with um, malaria and, uh, yeah. and um, <clears throat> things like measles and diseases like that. And then you, you get something like Ebola, which was, um, you know, something they'd never had in that part of West Africa. Ebola... Oh, have you seen it in the Congo? There's yeah, Ebola, Ebola, Congo a few Ebola times. is thought to have originated in the Congo, and in fact, the word Ebola is the name of a river in the Congo. That's right. Um, but it had never been seen in West Africa before. Um, and um, as you rightly said, it took a hell of a long time for the world health organization to send people in to start dealing with it. Yeah. Um, from my recollection, it was like September, October 2014. That's right. And before aug- they got in there. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> in August, you had some interventions from Médecins Sans Frontières mm. and this crowd, uh, but half of them got infected with Ebola as well. Uh, they weren't really following the best protocols. They mm. weren't really engaging with community members in, a, in an effective way. There was one story that was written in Time magazine about a U.S. physician who was doing work in Ebola, and, and he said that at one point there was a little girl who was so distressed mm. by, by the fact that her mother was moments away from death that in order to consult her or console her, he removed his isolation gowns. Now, if you see these isolation gowns, you, you kind of have the appearance of Darth Vader. Mm. Uh, it's mm. very intimidating. So he actually removed his gown mm. to sort of comfort the girl, but in that time, that's when he got infected and she got mm. infected. Mm. You know, it's spread in, in, in ways by not following these best practices. But by October, you then had Cuba that committed 465 infectious disease specialists to the region, mm. and by February of the next year, it was pretty much wrapped up. It was under control. Yeah, yeah. But I think you mentioned a few minutes ago the um, the lack of the lack of understanding of the community context, and I think that was a big issue with Ebola. <clears throat> you know, these medical experts came in trying to deal with a highly infectious disease. Um, but what they didn't do was to understand some of the um, uh, community traditions and cultural traditions and so on. For example, um, in Sierra Leone, if, if somebody dies, you wash the body, you wrap it in a white cloth and you bury it within about 24 hours. Now, people were told to just go, no, go nowhere near somebody who had died from Ebola because they were still infectious. And then, as you say, the Darth Vader-type suits, people were terrified of these. Um, people walking into their communities with these space suits on. Um, so there's been a lot written since then about um, the sort of social-cultural effects of this, of this Ebola. Um, to say nothing about the, um, the economic effects, because the president of Sierra Leone, I guess in good faith, said, well... You shouldn't travel. You should um, mm-hmm. just stay in your village, and at certain times, stay in your house. They did a they did that quarantine in Freetown, in the capital. Yeah, uh, they quarantined everyone up to go inside for seventy two hours, military uh, curfew yeah. for the whole population. And in those seventy two hours, not only did it actually increase the odds of Ebola spreading, it 
elevated the increase of other infectious diseases spreading yeah. it too. So you had now a minor tuberculosis outbreak taking place and, and other infectious diseases yeah. and fevers. Yeah. Yeah, but imagine if you're in a village mm-hmm. where your main job is farming and you're told you can't go to your farm, you have to sit in the house. Uh, and the farm is going to produce food to feed your family and the farm is just sitting there um weeds are growing choking the crops and so on and uh, you're just not allowed to go out and work on your farm so it had an impact on um, village nutrition and things like that in terms of the harvest that were produced during that time so that the whole of the whole of life was disrupted by this Ebola, and and of course the area was stigmatized by the world community. Oh, um, very much. Yeah, you know, I was running a I was running a conference in Dunedin, New Zealand, on Africa, on African studies, and I was phoned up by the medical office officer of health to tell me, is anybody come coming from Africa? And I said, well. Um, we have Africans coming from Australia and from New Zealand, and there are a few coming from Africa. And there was a sort of assumption that the whole of Africa had Ebola. It's a, what a geographical error. Yeah, whereas uh, it really was just three countries, um, Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, where all, most of the deaths were. There was um, a death in Nigeria and there was one or two in the USA and these were from migrants and so on, or even health workers. Health workers, yeah. Yeah, but um, the whole region was stigmatised and so if you said you'd been to Sierra Leone, you know, getting into a country like New Zealand or wherever or the UK or whatever would be very difficult. Canada uh, banned visas and there was protests within the United States to ban all flights coming into Mm. into the US from the entire African continent. Yes. You know, the geographic distance of, say, you know, Sierra Leone to South Africa is what equivalent London to Sao Paulo. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a massive stretch of geography. And, you know, this also begs the question, you know, we're talking about health with something like this, when you have a health emergency, you see how quickly it trickles down and <clears throat> creates these economic impacts, impacts food security at household levels, all of this. You know, without a really strong, resilient public health care system or universal health care, no matter where it is, these challenges are going to come up. So right now, in, in this region, Sierra Leone and in other parts of African continent, there's a lot of push by sort of new development actors, China, Russia, Turkey, they're all opening up embassies. You mentioned China was paving the roads in Sierra Leone. <clears throat> Turkey now has 38 embassies across the African continent, and 12 of those were open since 2013. China has 52 embassies out of the 54 countries in Africa. Mm. Does this give you any indication that this could be a change in economic yeah. development, or are we going to see kind of more of the same? Yeah, well, um, well, some people are regarding it as a, a phase of neo-colonialism. Mm-hmm. So the, the the traditional colonial powers of um, of the UK, uh, of France, um, to a lesser extent Spain and Portugal, that that era has been replaced by these other countries coming in. The and, BRIC nations, Russia, well, yeah, Brazil, yeah. Turkey, China, yeah. Um, the Chinese have been in Sierra Leone for a long, long time. They were there in the 1970s when I was there, um, introducing irrigated rice projects and things like that. So they've been around for a long time. But there's no doubt about it that their 
their involvement in Africa has increased massively, even in the last decade or two mm -hmm. decades. Um, and it's interesting to hear what you say about countries like Turkey and so on. Um, the UK is still heavily involved in giving aid to, to Sierra Leone, and the links between Sierra Leone and the UK are really very strong. Uh, you know, they helped to bring the end to the war and that sort of thing. Um, but yes, um, these countries have to, I guess, have to be fairly careful about how they deal with these uh, these foreign countries in terms of what are the African countries going to get out of it. Yeah. The, you know, for example, in exploiting resources and so and on. And there's so many resources to be and have been in the past exploited. Exactly. You know, you take a country like Zambia, which is, to all intents and purposes, a one-product economy with copper. Mm -hmm. That copper production is now largely controlled by companies that are run by Chinese. Mm -hmm. And um, and Zambia has been fairly stable since independence. There's never been a coup there. Um, so fairly stable environment, and yet um, and rich copper resources, yet Zambia is still regarded as a very poor country. Yeah. And one has to ask the question, to what extent are they getting the right sort of returns for the raw, the raw materials, the resources that they're exporting? And I think all African countries have to be very much aware of, um, of not being exploited. Um, okay, the Chinese come into Sierra Leone and help to build the roads, but what are they expecting to get from the Sierra Leone government and so on? And uh, there could be political, uh, yeah. there could be economic uh, yeah. links there too. Yeah. Having said that, when the Ebola struck Sierra Leone, um, quite a number of the foreign mining companies pulled out. There was a British company uh, mining iron ore, the London Minerals Company, that, and that pulled out. Um, British Airways, which had run flights to Sierra Leone for 50 years, stopped flying there and have not gone back. So to get to Sierra Leone now, you cannot fly directly from London. You, you go through France? France or um, uh, Amsterdam right. or Brussels, Brussels or Casablanca in Morocco. Huh. Um, but there's no British airline flies directly there. But, you know, there is a large Sierra Leone population in London um, that have regular contacts with their relatives in Sierra Leone and want to travel there, but... The, the direct link from London to Freetown has not been reinstated. So, okay. Yeah. So these, again, more trickle-down effects of how these health and development consequences impact countries like Sierra Leone. Professor mm. Tony Binns, we have to, we have to leave it there. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us on the Global Development Primer and, again, for taking the time to meet up in Black Ball, New Zealand, which <laughs> I'm... I'm guessing there's only about 300 people in this town with us right now as we attend a uh, sort of a meeting, rally about uh, workers' workers' rights and climate change here on the west coast of New Zealand. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. All right. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. we'll have you on again to talk about more of these exciting development issues. Thanks again. Thank you.